Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, we can find, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, media and digital production. And second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about 5.1 and stereo, and, and not stereo, everything other than stereo, surround. And it's just really an introduction. We are we, There was a question about whether we're doing it in 5.1. Not yet, but we are very close to that. So we're going to explain what all these things mean and give some ideas about what they, you know, what we're hoping to do with them in the future. So if you have questions around surround sound, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. And if you have general questions, throw them in for the first hour. And remember to vote on the questions. Uh, it does make a big difference. Uh, you're setting up our run of show. You're building that as we go. So uh, your votes do matter. And um, so definitely uh, jump in there and uh, vote on the questions that are the most important to you and uh, ask questions throughout the hour. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? Our first one comes from Marty Adias here on the panel from Maryland, and he says Sennheiser recently announced a new wireless multi-channel audio system. WMAS is their uh, initialism for it. And he says, what are the panelists' thoughts on this? And he's got a link to investigate. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, so this is really interesting. You know, right now, um, every wireless microphone, every in-ear wireless monitor, every comms channel needs to have its own wireless frequency to work on. And there has to be a space in between each of those. And each of those need to be coordinated uh, to work together to avoid intermodulation. It gets very complex. What Sennheiser is proposing to do is to take all of that information, all of those data streams traveling in both directions and put them on one block of RF spectrum, like one channel, right? It's going to be a wide channel, probably uh, looks like six to eight megahertz wide, which is the equivalent of a single TV channel. So there's some interesting uh, FCC approvals that will need to be made, and maybe they'll need to make some additional space for this. But it looks like it's going to be able to carry 64 channels of audio in one RF carrier in both directions. That's fascinating. Good, Jeff. It's actually really fascinating. It's a total different way of looking at wireless. Um, they do say it can coexist with the current uh, narrowband systems, but they don't have more information on their website about that yet. So I'm kind of curious to see how how this will work in the short term while we have you know, the Sennheiser system, but you still have legacy systems that need to coexist within work in the same show. So that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot more density. So I, I, it took me a little time to kind of get my head around it. We were talking about it this morning. And and I think that the, th that the one of the big things is by taking that entire swath and having one whole chunk that it has there, it's able to, um, much like the decked system would, you know, uh, allow you to put higher density in, it's going to say, if I have this whole area, Six, you said, and Marty, you said 64 channels bi-directional? Yeah, that's what they're suggesting. Yeah, because normally that would be probably uh, across that about 18, 18 to 20. So that's three times the density if it, if it has that whole continuous swath um, that's, that, that it's using. So that's a pretty interesting, and it, it's definitely interesting. We'll keep on tracking it. Maybe we can even try to find someone from Sennheiser to come and ask some questions. Um, yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think I read through the article as well, and I think it's not only 16 channels or, or 32 or 64, but it also has comms built into it. So it has more than just the production audio going bi-directional. It has some control stuff as well. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, next question. 
Next question comes to us from Jacob Goodnight in Indianapolis, Indiana. When conducting sync tests to dial in audio today, is recording the feed via QuickTime sufficient, or do you need to monitor, do a monitor or screen record to the far end of Zoom to determine the audio delay needed? I would definitely check it. Here's you probably QuickTime is probably going to be the best of those two things. The problem with Zoom is, and and this is not just Zoom. This is the problem with anything that's WebRTC is that it your video is being sent as one as you know your video is being sent separately from your audio, and there's a good reason for that. And the reason that that happens is because if you get your video and audio together and you start dropping video frames, you'll drop audio frames and then you'll hear this clicking. And, and that actually happened in the early days when they were trying to make that all work, but they learned pretty quickly to separate those two things out. And so what that means though, is that we are constantly dropping frames in, in WebRTC, you're dropping frames all the time. And uh, and so, uh, and you drop more of them if you're on Wi-Fi, less of them if you're not, but you still drop some here and there. And so what happens is, is that in anything that's a real-time, like a WebRTC-style system, you're going to be plus or minus two frames all the time. It's just going to keep moving back and forth as it, as it tries to keep it. And for a while, it'll stay right on, and then it'll be a little ahead, and then it'll be a little behind. And so trying to do it off of Zoom is pretty hard. You can get pretty close, but do it, watching the far end of Zoom uh, would be difficult. Um, and we didn't even notice this until we had a we had a what used to be the old what's called a validate, and we we watched the validate and ran it through Hangouts at the time. You just see this big swat, this thing moving back and forth as it tried to kind of manage all of that. Anyway, so I think that the the QuickTime is probably going to tell you what it's leaving your computer at. If if you're live streaming, what I prefer to do is record on the far end. So um, I like to uh, record. Uh, I if I'm streaming to like let's say HLS. Uh, and sometimes I'll stream to HLS, even if I'm going to go to YouTube later, and I will record those segments, those HLS segments, and then open those in my my NLE from Final Cut for me, and then look for, in, you know, I'm doing a slate cut, slow, uh, close or something, and I'm looking for that impulse plus the where where the slate is when it makes that impulse, and then I correct from there. So so that is the, the way that I try to do it, is try to get it all the way on the other side of the encod- encoder <clears throat> when I'm streaming. Um, I don't, we haven't tested it recently with YouTube for, for a long time. YouTube was different based on l- what it looked like live and what it would look like in VOD by about a frame. So, um, so it's, it, you have to be kind of careful of downloading the videos on, on YouTube. You may be off by a frame. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Sean Pickering in Loughborough, UK. And Sean says, uh, this is the Freya Tech Pocket 3 cordless detachable 4K camera and gimbal that was offered on Kickstarter yesterday. Has anybody seen or do they have any ideas about it? It looks like an interesting option to the Insta360 link with the addition of a remote control. And he's got the link there to the Kickstarter for it. Good, Nigel. Yeah, so I was looking and studying this. I don't have one, but I was studying it. And that, that additional handle seems to be the net ad. I also think that the the camera itself is magnetic and they show you it driving down the highway. They don't say you're what speed and it stays on there. Might be an expensive way to find out whether they're, how good the (laughs) magnet is. Um, I I looked at the Kickstarter price for both the camera and the the handle. They're offering it for about 300 US dollars plus shipping from Hong Kong. They're saying that the commercial price would be closer to 500. So uh, I think if you were looking at, you know, uh, that sort of thing, I've, we discussed yesterday gimbals, and I'm thinking of getting a gimbal for my iPhone. I think that may be a cheaper way to deliver a high-quality uh, type image. You go ahead, Marty. So, yeah, so it is very interesting. But um, while that is a Kickstarter program and uh, not yet released, there is a very similar product 
Um, and I have one here from Idlecam. This is a handheld three gimbal camera uh, that works. It's very interesting. It has a um, touch screen on the back so you can get to the menu systems. And um, let me, I can show you something much better than that. So <clears throat> it has interchangeable lenses and lights and microphones, and it's all magnetically attached. Um, and so you can get everything from a wide angle lens to a zoom lens. There's even a microscope uh, accessory that you can get with it. Um, that's really interesting. And it has HDMI output. It has remote control, but it's a little funky because it, the remote control is set up to be used wirelessly as a, uh, um, a for a drone. Uh, and uh, it comes in different packages. And the most expensive package with all the accessories and stuff, it comes with a selfie stick and all that, $600. So uh, it's a, <clears throat> and it's a 4K camera too. So do you know what the chip size is on it? The sensor size? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, let me see if I can find that. I couldn't quite find it quickly, but yeah, it looks cool. It's, it's a really, it looks like a little, uh, little engineering project there. So um, yeah, it, it will, it'll be interesting. The, the Fiutech, I, I, I've had some of their products in the past and weren't over the moon about them, but the, but this one looks actually intriguing. And what we're seeing a lot with a lot of these manufacturers is over time, they're getting much better, you know, so they start off as, you know, something that's relatively inexpensive and cheaply made. And as they keep moving forward, a lot of these uh, companies are, are making things that are much more refined. So um, I'm really, I'm definitely interested in it. Uh, it's, it, it definitely looks, both of these look like an interesting, um, interesting cameras to, to play with. Uh, next question. Okay. Next one comes to us from Joshua Minden in Madison, Wisconsin. Good morning. I'm needing a high-quality teleprompter with a dedicated display versus an iPad-driven uh, unit that works with a Canon XA40 camcorder for use in studio and spaces with lots of natural light. The single, uh, It's a single speaker he's looking for the teleprompter for at six to nine feet for the scripted task, uh, text, and his budget is uh, under 3000 U.S. dollars. Good morning. All right, so um, ICANN has a 19-inch teleprompter uh, that works with any camera, and it's uh, $2,400, and the uh, the monitor is 1,000 nits, so that's pretty bright. I'll go, Jason. I'd say the prompter people, 24-inch, uh, I'm not sure if you're going to hit right at 3,000 or a little bit higher for the Hybrite monitor. The nice part is you get SDI and HDMI, and it's auto-reversing, so pretty handy. Yeah, I've had quite a few of the prompter people at 24 inch, um, and and they've been solid. I, I have an, a smaller ICANN, which has worked relatively well. Um, the problem, with it, Marty, is the ICANN three by four, or is it or is it is it a three by four? Is it like a or is it an actual sixteen by nine monitor? Uh, let's see. It says most of the ICANN ICANNs have been. Um, I think it's a three, three by four. four. Yeah, yeah and which true. makes sense if you're so the main the main thing you have to decide is what you're using the teleprompter for. The three by four works fine if you are reading it. If you're putting text in there, it actually might be advantageous because it does that. If you ever want to use it as what we found with the iCans is if you ever want to use them as a interatron, so you're basically putting a person in there, then the prompter people work a lot better because they're sixteen by nine. If you don't care about that, then the nineteen inch um, iCan may may work great for you. So, but th that's what I would think about a little bit there. 
So ICANN also has um, models with a, uh, a screen below the teleprompter that can be a wide, you know, an HD 16 by 9 screen right. to put up a second image. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can do a lot of that as well <laughs> for, for all of them. We, we oftentimes put lots of monitors around them to, to do that, but we can do that on our own. Uh, yeah. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jacob Goodnight in Indianapolis, Indiana. And Jacob says, assuming a semi-treated quiet room, what would you choose between the Shure MV7, the Stellar X2 and the Rode NT1? Go ahead, Jeff. I would pick the Stellar X2 for two reasons, three reasons. Cost, it's the least expensive. Uh, size, so compared to the Rode NT1, they're both condenser microphones, but the Stellar X2 is a little bit physically smaller. So if you're going to use that on screen, that's better. And uh, you don't have the demands of uh, gain that the Shure, oh, I'm sorry, Shure MV7. Ooh, I read that as uh, SM7B. Uh, I'd still probably take the Stellar X2, but the Shure MV7 does give you the USB output, so you don't have the problems of the Shure uh, SM7B that has low output and needs a lot of gain. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, Jeff gave you very good advice, and I'm just, we're all kind of assuming that you're talking about the kind of thing we're doing here, which is close micing someone in a, in a small room for voiceover kinds of things. Uh, if you're doing something different, the, the options may change. Like if you're doing mm-hmm. uh, resume films or something like that, I might go with a different kind of microphone. But for this kind of work, those are great, great suggestions. Go ahead, Jeff. And, and it does really depend on what you want to do and what you're going to do. The um, and, and by the way, that sure comes in both a USB model and a non-traditional you know traditional XLR model. Um, and, and that one actually ends up being the least expensive of the bunch. But it's a dynamic microphone. Uh, the other two are cardioid. So it really depends what your need is. If, if you are talking and, and it's just a podcast or some broadcasting and it's semi-treated, you, you might fare better uh, with that dynamic mic if you want more definition. And, and I always point out, by the way, because I have the Rode uh, NT1 also, it's great. It's really quiet, uh, but it's also semi Sensitive. And there is always the NT1 and NT1A, uh, a significant difference in terms of that, that brighter high end on the A and the more traditional sound of the NT1. So it, it really depends on what your needs are. Yeah, I'm, I'm using a Stellar X2 right now. <laughs> so so I, I use that. Uh, the MV7 uh, is something that we, that's what we send out as standard for folks for the Michael Krasny show. So we uh, send out the MV7s um, automatically. They are they tend to not pick up a lot of the room. Uh, they uh, it's a USB, so it's relatively easy to plug in. Um, so as far as ease of use, we find that the MV7 for quality looks really good. And what I will say about the the Rode NT1, the new generation five, um, I'm probably going to pick one up in the next week or so just to test. Um, and the main thing that I want to look at there is it's got processing that looks like it's built into the mic, so you use the software can attach to the mic. And you can change all kinds of things like compression and dynamics and everything else that, that are in inside the mic um, and uh, via USB. And that's that's my theory. And it's 32-bit float. So it delivers 32-bit float out of the new, uh, this is the brand new NT1 Generation 5. And so I'm very, very intrigued by what they did there. Uh, and and so if they, I got to say, if they if they put an SD card in, I'd be running, but not walking. You know, if, you know, if I could record double end into, they have so much there in that mic. Just having an SD, a micro SD card would 
change it or even just internal storage that you could pull off that if you know what's missing on a mic for us is the ability to easily double end and so if i could say there's a little button on the mic and i push it and it's got internal recording that's enough for let's say 10 hours or something like that and as soon as i'm done i can pull it off the usb that'd be a that'd be a hot mic <laughs> you know, so so anyway that's all uh, next question Paul Buchan in Columbus, Columbus, Ohio, says, I got the, an email this morning announcing Dante Studio 2. New features and pricing. Thoughts? And he's got a link there to it. Go ahead, Marty. So Dante is starting to incorporate video, you know, uh, a la what NDI has been doing for a long time. And uh, there are a couple of manufacturers that have started manufacturing uh, video products with Dante built in. This seems to be... Um, one of the first software products that Dante is releasing or announcing to the public that incorporates video. I don't see a lot of uh, uh, audio uh, changes to this. Uh, it seems to just be incorporating video if I'm reading it right. I have to admit that this announcement is probably ending my interest in Dante video. <laughs> like, you know, so I, I, I will say because... It's PC only, which means it'll be PC. It'll be a PC first de development. And as a Mac user, I just know that it'll never really be good. <laughs> like you know, like, like you know, like OBS on a Mac, it's like forget uh, it's about just, it. It's just if someone builds something on the on the PC first, you just immediately, as a Mac user, you just go, well, that's never really going to work. It's always going to be some weird port. They're never going to use. They're never going to write to the the Mac. Um, they're never going to write to the M1 natively. Like truly, they're going to try to do some kind of you know, crazy in between and it's never, it's always going to be buggy because, and that works for some things. If you're using Discord or, or you know, these Electron apps, if you're using Discord or Slack or things, you can make cross-platform things. I'm not saying you can't ever do that. But when it comes to audio and video, if you don't write straight to the, the, the hardware, you just end up with lots of little weird problems all the time. So this is probably the, <laughs> the death nail for me uh, that I probably won't look at Dante video ever. Because of because I just because of how they're how they're rolling it out. Uh, next question, Jesse Kester in Glendale says, "I think I should get a ten inch ish monitor that has horizontal flip for use with my teleprompter. Any recommendations, or is there a software solution that allows an extended display on a Mac to flip horizontal?" Good, Nigel. So I can tell you what I did. I got a fairly cheap uh, uh, system from Amazon. I think it's called a WiMAX screen. Um, and then it occurred to me that I needed to flip it, and the next price upgrade on that was quite high, so I put a decimator on it and flipped it around, and I used that as my entire intro, I used that to, for Zoom. If you're really just going to use it as a teleprompter, there's plenty of software for the Mac that will do all of that for you and, and flip it around. Um, it's a pity to me that, that Apple actually doesn't make that a setting in displays that would allow you to flip the screen around, and it would probably save us all a, a lot of time and money. There was a piece of software called Screen X, I believe, that that did let you flip Res it. Res X, yeah. Res X. It would let you flip it, uh, flip it horizontally and hard set the output and, and other things like that. But I think that was a didn't didn't make it to the some OS. And I think it was, there was some OS where it got left behind. Go ahead, Bill. Nigel covered it all. I went with one of the Lilliput screens because it's built into that. But uh, they get a little expensive when you get up to ten inch, and there are better software ways to do it. And the decimator, some most of the decimators will do it too. Yeah, the, the lily puts are what we've used a lot for that. And they, they definitely, at least the ones we bought years ago, uh, they're about $175 to $225 uh, for a 10-inch. 
I think, in that range. I think they, the Lilliput may be moving up into a higher quality, higher price um, and away from feel world, which is, so what you'd want to look at is if feel world does it. I will say that we were talking about this a little bit before the show. I, uh, um, I buy everything now from Amazon. I mean, anything I can possibly buy on Amazon, I buy on Amazon because of the return policy that I can go to Whole Foods and just hand it to somebody with a QR code and it just goes away. No boxes, no watch. You know, like you just, you just hand it to them, they throw it in some box and um, and they sell it to people for parts or something. I don't know what happens, but the point is, is that I've been much more aggressive about it. I, at first I thought, this is going to kill Amazon. They're going to have all these returns. But then I realized, oh, now I don't want to buy anything anywhere else. So just remember that you can buy just a couple of these monitors on on, on Amazon and then just return them to Whole Foods um, and pick up some asparagus. Now, next question. Mark Renzel in Tumwater says, will today's show actually go out in surround sound? We're so close. We, we have had some test feeds going out in 5.1. Um, this one is not, not going out. Today, it's not going out. We're gonna, just going to talk about it today. Uh, but it is the preparation. This is us stepping up into getting people ready to um, understand it. And there will be shows in the not-too-distant future where we're moving things around in 5.1. And the, at first, you're only going to be able to – one of the reasons we're not really worried about 5.1 yet – is that it only works with over the t- over the top television? So OTT is so your Apple TV or your Chrome Chromecast and other things like that are the only things that can support the five point one at the moment. So uh, so we're as that kind of moves forward, we're 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 doing a lot of things that don't make sense yet, but will as the technology catches up, and we're part of helping that technology catch up. <laughs> so anyway, so that's that's what we're working on there. Next question. Uh, next one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Has anyone tried the SE Electronics Neom and USB mic? And if so, thoughts? Thanks. It looks good. I mean, it it, it looks like a nice little mic, uh, but I haven't, you know, there's so many mics coming out. So we have a lot of us have, I, no, we, we couldn't, I don't think we found anyone that has actually used one. Go ahead, Jeff. <clears throat> no, I haven't. But, you know, one thing I wanted to point out, and, and similar to what Alex was uh, mentioning before about what the the new Rode NT1, if, if you're looking for a USB mic, I would at least suggest looking at the pre-Sonos Revelator USB mic. Um, <clears throat> what's amazing about it is the software and the DSP. So there's a DSP built in to the the mic and and the software mixer is the same software mixer that comes with the separate external USB audio interface. Um, amazing controls. Uh, it installs additional drivers that lets your system think you have additional devices so you can send separate discrete mixes. Uh, you can enable, if you want, what they call a fat channel, which gives you a, a rack of uh, full EQ compressor, completely configurable uh, compressor, um, uh, limiter, a, a whole, it, it's just amazing. It, with the DSP is built in, and then that software, uh, runs you know, it. runs on the computer. Now, that mixer. You, this 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 would probably be like the MT1, but can you, or the uh, the, you can can you set all that, and then you just unplug the mic, and then it just stays that way. So every time you plug it back in, the mic does it, or does the mic have to be reset every single time it's connected? It, it does load it now, and actually, I'm assuming it works the same way as the as the separate interface. But with the interface, at least, I can tell you that you can you can have any number of presets in the software that you can save. You can load two presets onto the interface. It, it is stored there. You don't have to be running the computer at that point, and all of your settings for those two presets are are happening on the DSP and they're stored there, well, like an Apollo or something. But like, like if that. you sent the mic, I guess my question is if I 
hooked up the mic and I used the configuration and I set it all up, could I then put it in a box and send it to someone without the software and it'll just do the last thing that I had it set to? That's the question. Theoretically. Theoretically. It works in your head. <laughs> cool. All right. Now, next question. Next one comes from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Hair Knob, Germany. And Fred says, BMD Blackmagic Design uses MADI to get audio into their new switcher. What is the history of MADI? Go ahead, Jeff. So MADI is multi-channel audio digital interface. It's basically the multi-channel version of AES-EBU. So uh, originally it was 56 channels. And uh, it's been expanded to 64 channels as long as you give up uh, having very speed. And that's up to 48 kilohertz. Uh, if you go to 96 kilohertz, you drop your channel limit in half. And it basically uses uh, the FDDI converted over to copper. It can run over fiber, but typically runs over copper. And so on one coax, you're sending multi-channels multi of digital audio, and it's clocked with a separate word clock. Good morning. Uh, I, I can't top the, the professor here, but um, it, it did start out uh, in broadcast and and then migrated to live show audio because it was one of the first uh, very reliable multi-channel audio, ne uh, not networking because it's a one-to-one -one, uh, connection between two devices. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I'm not sure whether it's really continuing to be as popular it was as it was given the advent of networked audio like Dante and such. Uh, I'm not surprised uh, that uh, Blackmagic has chosen this because it's uh, license-free. Yeah. Like the license free is the key part there. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that, you know, we, we always dreamed that someday Blackmagic would support uh, the, uh, you know, Dante, but there was very little chance because Blackmagic doesn't really like to pay other people for licensing if they don't have to. So Maddie is a, is a relatively good one. It's, it's used a lot in broadcast because it's simple. So the Dante has a lot more power than Maddie, but the problem with Dante is that you really need someone who understands how to use it. Whereas Maddie is, I'm just going to plug this into here. And what happens is even though it's point to point, you loop it, you know, so you go in and out and in and out and it just passes these, you can add some stuff to it. And so people can, but a broadcast engineer doesn't need to know a lot about networking. All they got to do is plug the coaxes into the system and they, and they can get the, the audio where it needs to go. And so that's a, it's a slightly different, it's, it's a simpler, much more limited, but much simpler process to use. Go ahead, Jeff. And the fact that it uses coaxial cable and BNC connectors and can go through uh, video patch bays. Uh, is not lost the yeah. fact that it took over in broadcasting. They understand that. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just like, oh, we can just plug this in and move it through. And it's actually a pretty, I, at first I was really frustrated when I had no interaction with Maddie really until um, until the black magic stuff happened because most of the time with trucks and stuff like that, we would just deliver analog. <laughs> like here's some analog, here's, because I didn't understand, I didn't understand Maddie because I just didn't, it didn't, I didn't have to do that many channels. And so, uh, but it is a pretty genius format as far as how that works. Um, but we, a lot of times we have to, and there's some things because of that licensing. So for instance, we have to use an RME to move, go from Maddie to Dante to get it, you know, Dante to Maddie to get it into some of our equipment because the equipment only supports Maddie. And I think a lot of that has to do with licensing. Next question. Brett Bilo in Appleton, Wisconsin's up next. And he says, in the pre-show, Alex diagnosed another panelist's audio as being delayed by eight frames. I could barely tell. Was this determined by a frame rate meter or time code act app? Or if Alex just eyeballed the time day, time delay, 
How can someone learn this sorcery? Go ahead, Jesse. It is a skill that you can definitely learn if you work in uh, broadcast media or post-production. And what you do is you watch for B's and P's. So phrases like Bilbo Baggins makes it really easy to see if the audio is in sync with the video. And once you become sensitive to it, anything above two frames off will be painful to look at. Yeah. And, and in reality, we're all a little off here in Zoom. I mean, that's that's kind of a <laughs> constant process there. I, I would love a feature. We should probably ask our feature for Zoom to have like audio delay in in the client would be amazing. So uh, so anyway, that but but I think we're all a little off um, when you get used to this. It, it, I think that the Malcolm Gladwell thing uh, was like 10,000 hours. I've, I've probably spent a solid 10,000 hours uh, looking at sync, <laughs> you know, solid 10,000 hours looking at it because we sit there in the back. A lot of times uh, in uh, when you're at an event, you're supposed to get some time on stage where we can go up and do mic checks. And you're hoping that you get to do them because otherwise if, if the event team does it, they'll come up and do this. They'll do this little weird slapping thing that we let them do that because if anything goes wrong, it'll be our fault that we didn't do the, the, the goofy little um, clap hand thing, but we don't, it's not useful. It's, it's plus or minus two or three frames at best. Uh, to Jesse's uh, point, uh, watching people's P's and B's, and specifically P's. So we have a, we actually have a, a we have one of our one of our PAs wrote it, but it's just a goofy thing with lots of P's <laughs> that, that have it, and someone just goes up there and reads it, and it, and we can sit there and dial it in. Now a lot of times though, we don't even have the luxury of using the stage, so we just sit in rehearsals and we dial it in. So that's when you get really good at it is that you sit there and you're dialing, you're just sitting there and, and moving the, the thing and looking and watching it. And a lot of times we guess, we look at it and go, oh, I think it's four frames. And you turn it four frames and you see if you're right. <laughs> you know, like, and so, so that's, you know, and then you move it and then you look at it again. And a couple of us sit around looking at it um, because sometimes we have a lot of time. We're done. We're all set up and we're not getting the stage time we were supposed to because they're rehearsing. So we just use that time to, to capture our, our, our um, sync tests. And then occasionally we we'd still we, we would always go up if we were able to but we use rehearsals a lot to um, to test that and your eye gets pretty con conscious to what you're what you're looking at uh, next question next one comes from Jason Bache in Albuquerque New Mexico and Jason says has anyone found a Raspberry Pi 4 touchscreen with a durable frame and enclosure for the first time ever i was not impressed by the stock 7 inch option this is a raspberry a touchscreen oh uh so the, the issue isn't the Raspberry Pi, right? You know, it's I mean, I have screen. I have a ton of these, and the touchscreen is just not. It's no, not wait, when great. You say it stock, makes stock. Who who makes a stock? Um, I'm trying to remember the 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 most common manufacturer. And are you are you trying to get one that's all built in? Because the ones that I have bought oftentimes are like literally wires are hanging out of them. They're not. Um, uh, so what I want is is a touchscreen, which is basically bring your own Pi. Click it in there, right? And um, oh, yeah. I the ones that I've gotten have been uh, a little. I don't even know if they're around anymore. Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> like, and that's the problem. They're flimsy. Yeah, I mean, I I have. Well, when I the one the last one I got was literally it just has the the it's a seven inch one and it, but it doesn't have any thing to it. Like you literally had to build something to put it in. Right. So it, uh, that's that's what I that's what I've been getting. Uh, is because I usually want to build it into a device, and so I don't really want uh, it to be self-contained. So it's just got wires hanging out of it to a control board that goes into the Pi. Um, so, yeah. 
Uh, next, I don't have an answer. Next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, I've discovered that you can assign applications on Mac OS to a specific desktop space from the dock. Is there any way to move an existing window to a desktop space without using the trackpad? You could use a mouse. Um, there sure is. You can right-click on it, and I, I don't want to know if it's option, something like option, and you can basically assign it to that desktop. Um, I believe it's also in the window menu, and once you put it there, every time you launch it, it's going to go to that desktop. Next question. Next question comes to us from Dave uh, Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Is there an Apple TV app for office hours, or did I miss the reason why not? Time and money. <laughs> that, that, that's the answer time and money you mean building uh, apps takes time and money it's crazy yeah so so there's no there's no app you can watch it on the apple tv through, through youtube so if you uh, go to um, youtube and you put the you know you, you search for us and you see the live stream there you can you can click it there and it'll take over and be a show for a live stream from youtube so that when i say you're watching it on apple tv you need to watch it on 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 YouTube right now. Uh, yeah, someday I, I've built. I've actually built an app that would do exactly what we. I mean, I didn't build it, but I designed it and had it built um, for somebody else, and uh, it would do exactly what we wanted to do. Just to put it in perspective, and the development budget on it was eh, about one hundred fifty thousand. <laughs> yeah, so to have it done, so you know, now it had a couple extra things. We could probably make it simpler, but. It, it was not it was not cheap to to build something that is rock solid. Now we could probably hack something together that was a lot less expensive that we could start playing with, and and we are looking at doing that this year. Uh, you know, our first push is to get. We really want to get YouTube working perfectly, but we are we do want to experiment with things like Atmos and Vision, and to do that, we're going to have to have a basic app that does that. It'll probably be very simple, um, something that we can throw together. Um, potentially with ChatGPT, chat <laughs> so we just asked ChatGPT to write us the app. But basically, I think that we're thinking about it where it just pops up, you hit a button, and it just opens up a live stream. Now, to, you know, and, and it just does the thing because we can use what's called the Foundation AV player um, that is that Apple makes. We probably won't make it if we make an app for the Apple TV or for the phone. It'll probably be just uh, just on the Apple products because we're going to be doing HDR and HDR on Android and Windows is not not well developed <laughs> so so we, we will probably won't won't support them for quite some time just because i don't have the time and money to to put into it um it's incredibly painful to to use do hdr and and, and surround on the other platforms now uh, next question john merrill in phoenix arizona up next with any comments on the new black magic hd8 slash iso switcher looks good for the price go jesse Absolutely. It looks like a great piece of kit. It is four XLR inputs away from being our next switcher. <laughs> and don't forget 4K. Yeah, yeah. I think that I feel like I, I don't know what the I don't know what the situation is. It kind of feels like Blackmagic gave up on 4K. <laughs> like they just they were like, well, not not a lot of people are using it or whatever. And it's a bummer because for a lot of us that are doing events and everything else, like there's the constellation, but everything else that's 4K is kind of old you know like there's a new there's one thing that solves it It goes all the way up to 8k and it's kind of like they feel like okay we gave you that that's what you can buy if you want that and then we're going to fill all this backfill all this stuff with 1080 now we're a month away from a little bit more than a month away from uh, um, nab so we can't assume that we're not going to see anything but i do think uh, and i think that this is a good business decision as, as a user i want to see more 4k 
Uh, as a business decision, I understand that Black Magic probably sold an enormous number of these uh, hundreds of thousands of these uh, little ATEM minis. And they're looking at, at how do you build the bridge to get to 4K, where most people, I have to admit that I have, uh, I've been buying 4K Black Magic gear since 2016, so it's so seven years. And I've only done maybe 30 events out of, you know, well over, I mean, thousands of events. I've done a, about 30 of them for clients that are 4K. <laughs> so like I've done lots of my own, but very few for the clients. And they're still, most of the production is still in 1080p. Go ahead, Bill. I thought, Jesse, that there was an add-on uh, plug-in box that does four and that you could add multiples of those. So is that not a solution for you? <laughs> It is, but once you start getting into modules, then I'm thinking, why am I not using an actual dedicated, um, you know, mixing device that is really built for that one task? And then it, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get the the module. Okay, fair enough. I just wanted, I, I remember watching the announcement, and I was pretty sure that they had an audio subsection. But there you go. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I think there are two things. There, four K is one of them. The other is the switch to STI. So those of us that bought into the, you know, the minis all have HDMI. So the jump to SDI will be a significant jump. And I suspect that if you want to do that at the right price, when 4K is available, that might be the time to do it. Yeah, it's, it is a, um, I'm just looking for, yeah. And one thing that I will say is that the one thing that they changed as well is, I mean, they do have four quarter inch analog audio inputs so it's it is for you you're looking for eight jesse is that what you're is that the so what i want is four so if i'm doing a small four. a small a four xlrns if i'm doing a small event that's plenty and if i'm doing a large event we're going to be taking you know the the xlr outs from a proper switching board and plugging them into the 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 vision mix, mixer yeah it's got four it's got four of the i mean this is new to it as well it's got four um uh it, it does have four quarter inch jacks said, i don't know yeah. whether those can be converted i, think, I don't know combo? if they can be switched to mac or line is the i mean micro line is the only question i have there the interesting thing about this one that the that the constellation doesn't have is the constellation was like 64 in and two out and this is 64 in 64 out so you you know this is more developed as far as an audio pipeline so marty yeah, I was really excited about this product because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I do integrations and right now I'm working for a, a, doing a music club and the, the thought of uh, being able to switch these cameras and bring in multiple channels of audio from the mixer to do, you know, in stems so that I can customize the mix for the stream was really interesting until I saw that it used Maddie <laughs> instead, of, instead of Dante. It just adds another thing. You have to convert it to to Maddie. You know that's that's the RME. That's the fifteen hundred dollar RME or whatever that you need to uh, that you need to do that conversion. Um, and then you're then you're there. The uh, you know I it, it's one of those things that it's it's always so close. You know, and and their audio is getting better. I mean, there's so much in this in this little uh, into this little switcher. I would love to see what I. I'm looking forward to seeing what the next version uh, that takes all this technology that are putting together, the next rack mountable version. The problem I really have with this the switcher in general is I hate having all the I.O. in the switcher because that is, I mean, I would never build a system that way. You know, so, so I look at it and I go, this is great. Now, where's my rack mountable version? Because what we do is our control, our control surface is an Ethernet. 
And the reason that that matters is because if I'm going to build a build a system, I want to put it in a rack. And in that rack, I'm going to have all my I.O. When you take that all your I.O. and you put it in the back of your panel, now you've got this huge snake of, or mess of cables or all this other stuff that's going to go out right into onto your desk. And now you can't and just when it's all plugged in, just start moving that thing around and figuring out where you want to put it. It's just, it, so if you're doing a permanent installation, like a school or a church or something like that, and or you're going to, you know, some corporate stuff, you know, but I literally walked into a, I was walking into a facility the other day and I looked down and I was like, where's the, you know, I see the panel. What, what switcher is it hooked up to? Oh, it's the pan, it's in the panel. I was like, okay, <laughs> like, like, you know, this is going to be hard, you know? And so, and getting in logistically, it's super painful to put it in the panel. So that's, that's why I'm waiting for the next thing because I was like, that's not going to move any, any, anything for me. Um, but it, I like what they're doing with the features. I do think it's funny that they added so many Ethernet connections in the back. <laughs> like, I was like, hmm, I wonder what they're going to do with those. I, I don't think it's just going to be a networking router. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herrenob, Germany. And he says, Blackmagic Design includes Fairlight in their switchers. It looks like the feature set of Fairlight is able to be a live audio switcher and not only a post-audio console. Could Blackmagic Design release an audio switcher? Uh, go ahead, Jeff. I guess they could. Um, but uh, I got in the 90s, I got to go to a early DAW shootout in New York City. And the company that impressed me the most was Fairlight. They really had their audio stuff together. They had a beautiful control surface for that. Um, and I think BMD has, has taken the Fairlight components that they needed to support the audio they want to support in a switcher. Um, I'd love more in the ATEM switcher as an audio person to get a better audio mixer in there, but I don't think they're going to release a separate audio device. That's not their business. I mean, they have a separate, I mean, they're, they still have the Fairlight board, you know, the Fairlight processing boards. I mean, they have, uh, there, there's other Fairlight hardware that they're doing. It's just really expensive. You know, it's not, but it's not really designed for live to the point, to, to the point that was made earlier. Uh, but it is, it, it, it would be, it, if there was better IO, into the in and out and i know that the maddie again this is what marty pointed out if there was better io i'd probably be a lot more interested in the switcher but still i just kind of embed everything down downstream from the switcher because of that uh, i'd also be interested if they started adding some panning for five we, we're going to talk about this in the second hour but you know some five one tools would be useful um in in the mixer um as now that it has 64 in and 64 out a reminder that you can ask questions. Um, so if you've got any questions before the end of the hour, general questions before the end of the hour, and also a reminder that we'll be talking about surround sound. So if you understand everything about surround sound and you could teach it, then uh, then you probably don't need to listen to the next hour. You should have been on the panel. If you are, uh, if you don't, if you have any questions or any kind of mysterious part of 5.1, definitely throw those questions in for the second hour and make sure to vote on the questions um, so that we know what order you want us to ask them in. All right, let's go to the next question. Next question comes from some David Brady in New York City, and David says, is anyone using X keys in conjunction with BitFocus Companion? I realize that X keys has its own macroing language for standalone use. Do you need to do any programming or EEPROM flashing, or does Companion just do it? I don't know if Companion just does it, but you know, there's an enormous amount of, I used to use X keys pretty extensively, and there's an enormous amount of interface going in and out of X keys where it's not, it's, it's not just this key does this. You can build all kinds of scripts and macros and all kinds of other things. So I, I would be very surprised if there isn't some kind, someone who's worked out a tight integration with X keys. X keys, for those of you who are listening, are 
you know, it, it is a, it's what happened before campaign companion and they have all kinds of keys. They have just contact closure, um, systems. They have a lot of other things. And then they have a whole interface that you can use to, you know, build a bunch of behaviors. And I used to build a lot of things inside of it. And so it's, it's a, it's really robust and it's not as extensive as companion. Um, but, but we, we were using it very successfully. If they don't integrate together, I, that would be crazy. I, I don't know for sure whether they do or not, but if they, I would be very surprised if there's not a way to have X keys fairly tightly um, tied into companion. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Continuing the earlier discussion on delaying by frames, are you adjusting the video to match the audio or the audio to match the video? Isn't audio more often ahead of the video? Thanks for explaining further. Yeah. Yeah, you almost always d delay the audio, and the audio almost always comes in faster, which is kind of funny because in, in the real world, the video comes in faster. <laughs> in reality, light reaches us faster, and it's why if you're ever going to make a mistake about delaying your audio, you want to delay it a little too much rather than a little too little because our brain will very quickly uh, adjust for the video being a little ahead of the, of the audio because that's how we see it every day um, is that the video is coming. If someone... The video, the audio is coming a millisecond behind the video for every foot. So if you see someone thirty feet away, they're literally a frame <laughs> behind. You know, their 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 audio is a frame behind them at thirty feet. So um, and and so your your brain understands what to do with that. The uh, if uh, the other way, audio coming through, and the reason for that is that when you do when you process audio and video, the, the audio takes a lot less to process. It's a lot less data, and the you know the DSPs and everything else can manage it at a much lower rate. And we oftentimes the expectation is it's going to go through really fast, and so video takes longer. Now, if you genlock things, if you there's all kinds of things you can do with the video to try to keep it down to the minimum. Uh, you know, delay, but it's generally going to be a, at least a couple frames behind the audio because it just takes more time, more processing to to do it. So, generally, you're delaying audio, and there's a lot of there's individual delay units that you can just get that are just a little box that just does delay. Um, a lot of things like the US the Mix Pre that we have here has a delay built into it, so we can do that there. So, there's a lot of things that can you know you can do the delay uh, with. Uh, hardware, and then you just dial it in. A lot of them will have up to, you know, oftentimes 500 milliseconds or half a half a second is pretty common, you know, to to have an in delay. You don't you don't want to delay it more than you have to, but that's but you can turn that up a little bit on, on a lot of hardware devices. So that's that's the um, that's how you delay. It. If your video gets ahead of your audio, and it does happen. So when we do some surround processing that we've done in the past, uh, we might have to delay. It. We we have in one case we have to delay it about 400, we have to delay the video 400 milliseconds, which may not seem like a lot to you, but it takes, it, now you're storing, un, you know, um, uncompressed UHD for 400 milliseconds. It's a lot of, lot of data, you know, so it's got to have a huge buffer. So, so delaying video, when video gets ahead of the audio, everybody, we, we panic because there's no easy way to fix that. You know, there's something very wrong with our system if if the video gets ahead of the audio. So if, if audio gets ahead of the video, it's kind of normal. We do it all the time. Um, next question. Albi Lopez in San Antonio, Texas is up next. The question is, has anyone set up a vMix with TalkBack in a system? Uh, oh, wait. Now I've managed to get a different one that popped up. A misfire there. Hold on. Yeah. Let's, let's pull that back again here. Um, okay. Let me get that closed out and we'll get back so up to I don't to know where that, where that went. Albies, it's the second one down there. Uh, well, 
There's another okay. one above it. Try refre- re- refreshing your frame there. Okay. Refreshing well, let's just page. do it. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, is up next. Discuss why 48 volts is superior to 12 volts with the ability of 48 volts to run less amps through the wiring. Are we moving from a 12 volt to a 48 volt low voltage world? Will this eliminate lead acid batteries, I presume? Go ahead, Jeff. So Watt's law, power is voltage times current. You have to have voltage, which is the push, and you have to have current, which is the flow. So if you increase the volts by four, you can get the same power with one-fourth the current. Uh, When there's a new development in your area and you double the number of houses, the power company doesn't have to uh, add new wire. They can just change out the transformers on either end and send a higher voltage to you and the same amount of current because you need thicker wires to carry more current. Uh, Are we moving from 12 volt to 48 volt low voltage world? I don't have an answer to that question. Go ahead, John. So yes, Jeff hit it right on the, right on the head. I, I, I use pi, pi voltage times current, um, to equal power. Um, what happened was last week at Tesla's, um, investor world conference, they stated that the cars are going to be moving to 48 volts so that the wires didn't have to be so large. That That's what prompted this question, I'm sure, with Paul. Next question. Next question, again, comes from Albi Lopez in San Antonio. Uh, has anyone set up vMix with TalkBack to produce a system that communicates with four local channels and the vMix calls separately? I'm hoping someone can clarify how it works with the different buses that vMix has. And he notes he's using a Focusrite Claret with X-Touch. I don't know very many people within our group that use the vMix call. I think that there are some that are just not on the panel today. Uh, a lot of us have moved, you know, as Zoom ISO kind of took over, a lot of us kind of moved to, we, I mean, we used, I, I, I actually bought all, the reason we have all these PCs <laughs> at home I know is because I bought them to use vMix with vMix call um, and found that it wasn't, uh, for me, stable enough to do that. So so I, I didn't, um, we didn't find that to be a, a great experience. And so we, we, turn them into zoom machines. Uh, so, so I don't, um, I think that, uh, yeah, I think one of the inputs that we have here is that you can uh, dedicate one of the eight buses to vMix call. So that, that might be another, another way to look at that. So maybe that helps you point you in the right direction. Next question. Dave Burke in Alexandria, Virginia, up next. When you use a language generator like GPT to assist in writing something, for example, a blog post for your website, do you feel obligated to disclose that with the post? If you use it for a video script, should you disclose it to your client? Go ahead, uh, Nigel. So I don't know legally you're obligated, but I would uh, put a whole bunch of warnings around this. Um, Someone very generously um, chat GPT, me and to give me a view of what they thought of me, and only half of it was completely wrong. So make sure that you, uh, when you use something, you need to double check it. Uh, I would probably, if I was the client, want to know whether you had done that. I mean, I don't necessarily care as long as you checked it um, and you know it to be true. But I, the other thing, I think there's a very interesting series on, on Netflix, a very famous story called uh, Pepsi Wears My Jet. When people put things out in public, which they haven't really checked and thought through very well. So it's much more important to make sure your copy, your content is right, and then give credit where you need to as you go. Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. 
Um, I don't feel morally obliged to, but depending on the client, we might be contractually obliged to if we're under an NDA. And these tools have some uh, some public form of what you're putting in and what it's generating for you. Uh, you you could be violating that NDA. So I would I would double check with the client and double check with the the text generator that you're using. Go, Jeff. Yeah, I'm going to uh, respectfully disagree with Nigel on half of that. By the way, same thing. I don't know legally, but um, ethically, morally, uh, absolutely not with the caveat that you probably shouldn't be doing it. At the very least, you want to uh, certainly check it. Don't sub, you know generate something and then send it off without proofreading it. But in other words, you don't disclose that you use spell checker or Grammarly to correct your grammar or anything else. You can generate something, but I wouldn't put it out there as a disclaimer because it basically says to either your readers or your client, I don't really give a crap about what this stuff is. I just need something to be there or I need a script to give you. There's no reason that you hired me because none of me is in this article or script. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there is, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of reasons sometimes to throw that in there because you can describe something. Again, I think that we also need to look at whether it's a technical thing that you're putting up or just something that needs to look nice, uh, you know, as far as inter introducing something. If it's technical, you absolutely have to check it out. If it needs to look nice and just telling people this is how you register or this is how you do this, it just has to read well, you know, and and a lot of times what I will say is that ChatGPT's English is far better than the average person writing, even copywriters, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it is, uh, that's why it sounds so sure of itself is because it's just using proper English. Um, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I've been standing in front of scripts in voice booths for 60 years now, and I will tell you that I can there's there's a voice thing that happens with these. I'm starting to see more and more scripts that I can tell just on the first reading came through this system. That does not make them bad. Robert it English. makes them consistently in the same type of well-crafted semi-active, semi-passive voice, and I look at them and they just feel to me like eating soda crackers. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you're hungry and want some salt and fat, it's a it's a satisfying thing to put in your mouth and chew up. But the magic is not there. Yeah. And I haven't seen anybody who's been able to generate a script that really sings the way that maybe 10% of the scripts I've stood in front of over my whole career, you read it, you go, oh man, that's good. And that's going to be fun to read. And I just don't get that kind of magic out of anything I've seen on ChatGPT so far. Maybe it'll get there. I think that it's it's kind of like if, if someone can build me a handcrafted coffee mug uh, that um, that is really, really nice, I'd much rather use the handcrafted one. So if someone's a really a craftsperson when they're writing something, then I'd much rather have what they wrote. But for the most part, a machine generated one that is that that you know fills the volume that I need is better than everybody trying to make their own mugs. And so the thing is, is that and, and right now everybody's trying to make their own like they write their own copy. And most of you know, I would say seventy percent of copy that I read on a day to day basis is pretty bad on the internet. Um, and so ChatGPT is better than that. I will completely agree that it's not better than the top thirty, twenty, or thirty percent of writers um, that are doing great work. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Thoughts or experience with modeling mics like the Universal Audio Townsend Labs Sphere that emulates most well-known mics like the Neumann U47, U87, Sennheiser MKH416, Shure SM7B, and ribbon mics and so forth. Go, Jeff. 
Yeah, I'm just fascinated by by mics like this. I'm curious if anyone has used it. Uh, it blows my mind in terms of the the physics that they're you know supposedly emulating. I know they you know you can enter room dimensions, for example, into the software to to help it do its calculations. But the fact that uh, this mic in the capsule and it's got two capsules that it can emulate reasonably well all these different mics that have physics like you know a shotgun mic has some physics behind what makes it a shotgun mic so i'm I'm just fascinated if anyone has some experience with them you know i i'm fascinated by them as well (laughs) you know and so so i you know i'm definitely looking at there's a couple different mics that do a lot of these these modeling and i know that Courtney usually has one so if you see Courtney on ask again uh, he I know he has one that he seems to like and so I I am very fascinated by them I haven't bought any of them yet they're in the price range where it's kind of like well it better work <laughs> you know like it's the four or five hundred dollar range or, or above uh next next yeah some of them are two thousand dollars but there's they range from about 400 to about 2500 bucks and they just haven't been in a range where I've felt like I was ready to to pounce on that uh next question Next question comes to us from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herrenob, Germany. Has anyone used BassoTech for audio treatment for a small studio or an insert studio? And he's got a link there to the product. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. I've not used it. Uh, from looking at it quickly, it looks sort of like the, uh, and then this is actually a use for the product, the pads you see on the rotary cleaners, industrial cleaners for floor, that kind of uh, open cell foam mesh. But uh, their actual um, absorption coefficient curves there, you see that green line is about four inches of this material, and it's doing a really good job of absorption down to about 400 hertz. Um, and that's a, a little better than the same amount of uh, linear fiberglass, the Owens Corning 701, which is sort of typical product. So this looks like it might be promising for uh, acoustic treatment. Yeah, it looks really interesting. Uh, next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona is up next. What camera angles would you like to see in a multicam outdoor interview with a host and two guests? One up, two up, three up product shot? Go ahead, Jesse. It really depends on uh, how many resources you have financially and in terms of uh, <laughs> human strength. If I had, bare minimum, I'd say three cameras, one locked on the host, one locked wide, and then a human operator going between the two de- uh, the two guests as they speak. And if they start to speak simultaneously, you zoom out and get them both at the same time. If I were building this in a comfortable range, I would say five cameras with five operators, uh, one, two, three for the host and the two guests, one wide, and then the product camera. I'm not sure what it's being applied to, but I'd have a, a fifth operator and a fifth camera for that product shot. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of times when we have that there, you know, you have the you, you'll have the two people being interviewed, and a lot of times I try to separate the 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 moderator out a little bit. That just gives me a place to to frame it, um, you know. So they're going to talk to them here, uh, and the, basically what we want to do is I want to where I position this person is I want to have a camera on the wide shot that will get past my moderator, even if they lean forward, um, and get to the, when I think about a person, <laughs> really bad, I wanna see the far side of the far eye. So I wanna, when they're when this person's talking to the moderator, I wanna see the far side of their, the far corner of their far eye in the in my wide camera here, same with the moderator. So I, I usually like these really wide, 
um, so that I can do that. And the risk that you have to what is that the people will lean into that shot. Um, so that's the thing you have to worry about as far as them leaning in. And that's where, and then you always have, as Jesse mentioned, a, a center shot, that's your safety shot. That's gonna be the wide establishing shot of them talking to each other. Um, but you have these two long shots and those are the minimums. And then what we do is then to, exactly what Jesse was talking about is we split those oftentimes with five cameras. Um, so that if someone leans in, I have a, I have a, uh, now, and, and what you're going to want here is I prefer, especially people are going to be sit, seated. I actually prefer PTZs, um, because it's not just money. It, it has to do with the fact that, uh, it's a real distraction to have that many people around that they'll make eye contact with everybody. And so, um, a PT set of PTZs is going to work way better in a lot of ways. There's a couple things about them was you can pre-program them. So you can say, I want this PC to be here. I want an over the shoulder. I want a single, I want a single, and that's all just pushing a button. You're not telling anybody anything. You're just going boom, 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 and it just reframes them to what you want. Um, and so I usually prefer to have uh, these, these be PTZs that, are, that can be all in a controller. Now, one thing that we do here is if, we ha if these guys are going to walk on, the far camera here, so the moderator will be here, the far camera here, this one will be operated. And the reason we operate that one is to because following someone walking, if they're gonna come on, is is harder to do with a PTZ. So we have one operated camera here that's gonna and it, it, it's gonna, it's also grabbing the best shots of the of your guests. Um and so and then the next step here is whether you, you know, where you want to put it. You typically want to try to put the, it, when you're outdoor, you're gonna have to figure out whether you you try to arc something over it. So you may goalpost it. So it's out of frame, but you might put two junior stands on either side and run a speed rail across it. And what you're doing is you're goalposting right over top of where your product is, and you can put a camera that looks down on it. Um, and so it looks like you're out, outside. Um, <laughs> it looks like you're outside, but you've got these two big goalposts that go that, that send it through. And those are, that's how we've done a, a lot of these in the past. Um, yeah. Uh, next. And now we're going to switch subjects uh, to uh, surround sound. If if the uh, if any of the uh, any of our guests or not any of our panelists, guests and panelists, I want to add something to what we're talking about here. Just go ahead and throw it into panel discussion. And if you've got questions about surround sound, um, you know, go ahead and um, ask your questions now uh, into the into the um, and think. Otherwise, it'll be really short because <laughs> we're really here. We're going to try to spark some some questions and then we're going to move on. So, uh, so surround sound is you know, and, and I'll start off while I'm seeing if any of the other folks on the panel want to jump on. But a lot of what we're trying to do is we're going to talk a lot about surround sound as we move forward. And we want to kind of just talk about some of the very basics. And I think that we kind of touched on it a little bit with the um, uh, the psychoacoustics that Jeff talked about uh, earlier and, you know, really talking about what those, you know, what they, what that means. Um, and, you know, we this, I'm trying to make this kind of a more as general as possible, um, a, you know, just a discussion about all the different ways that we do this, because we're hearing a lot of different things like spatial audio and we talk about Atmos and we talk about surround and we talk and there's lots of different brands of those things. And what we want to do is think about, you know, what those are and and really understand what we're listening to. I started the first project I got into with surround. Uh, they started throwing out numbers and I didn't know what they were. I was like, I was like, I was like they were like, well, we got to decide whether it's a 714 or 514 or 916. And I was like, what are they talking about? And so what we're trying to do is avoid avoid that um, and and get into that so that when we start bringing more people on that are going to talk about surround, which is going to happen pretty often um, as we get ready to go, uh, that you aren't asking 
the most simple questions as, as, as you know, that we have some basis. So today is really about those basics of just talking through it. And we're going to definitely over the next um, coming weeks and months, dig very deep into um, this, this concept. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I think we need to talk about those numbers and figure out what they are. Um, talk about base management. Um, and uh, I've, I've thrown in some questions that kind of lead along this as far as what's the difference between an LFE and a subwoofer. Those kind of basics that we need to get. And, uh, you know, there's a long, long history back. Uh, we're approaching 100 years. I think it was like late 1930s that Disney with Fantasia uh, took the flight of the bumblebee and spun it around the theater in Fantasound. And so we've, we've come a long way and we still have a long way to go. And uh, immersive audio is probably the broadest term we could use to capture all of the spatial and surround and Atmos and everything else. Yeah. And it's, I, I will say that it, to me, immersive audio or spatial audio or surround, as I've worked with it, um, when it's done well, I feel like the difference between mono and stereo is like one tenth the distant difference between stereo and uh, and, and the, the various Atmos is what I've had the most experience with. Um, it's just because there's so much. Uh, what what happens um, perceptually is that what what we found, and and this is we'll talk more about the exact channels. But if you're if you're sitting there and you're listening to something. As we, as you hear things from different parts of the world around you, whether it's above you, below you, to around you, et cetera, as you hear these things, what happens, and I didn't see this coming until about halfway through my first, <laughs> my first immersive project, is as you hear things, what happens is it tickles your brain. It goes, hey, there's something over here, and, you're, and you will start to pay attention to that, you know, and you'll start to, you'll know that it's there. And so as we keep on touching different parts of what you're perceiving, um, what happens is, is it creates a bigger space in your, in your head. I know that sounds like a very touchy-feely kind of thing, but it actually creates a bigger space on what you're paying attention to. Then when you drop something into the center channel, so you put someone right in front of it and you go right down that, that middle channel, they, you perceive them as more present. You know, so I, I watched a music video uh, at a pretty big stage and the first four minutes is just music and 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 uh, a lot of ambient of, you know, an outdoor street area and everything else. And then the, the singer starts to sing and I had never perceived anyone uh, more in front of me <laughs> in three in, in, in audio than I did at that moment because it, 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 they had spent the whole time building up how I perceived the space that I was in, um, you know, in my, in mentally, and then it dropped in. So that's one of the reasons that surround is so, so interesting. And I think that a lot of times also, you know, when we start to do a lot of the stuff where we're moving the, the instruments around, the thing that I noticed, and you notice it a lot with some of the Apple stuff that's being done is, uh, is that I'm more present to way more instruments. So m instruments that were kind of muddy, in stereo, I suddenly hear them in a, in a clear way because they have a place, you know, in the mix. And so it's, it's uh, yeah, go ahead, Marty. So yeah, this, this surround sound is a really interesting thing. There's, uh, there's two sides of it also. On the consumer side of the media chain, uh, there is how we set up a sound system, whether it's uh, uh, 3.1, 5.1, 12.4.2, whatever it is, um, you know, how complex, how in, 
immersive are we setting up our sound systems? And, and what are the psychological effects that that's going to have on how we perceive audio and where we perceive them from and, and all that. But then on the creator side of the media chain is how do we create those things, right? How do we do a surround mix? What kind of equipment do we need? Um, what features do we need to look for in equipment, whether it be a DAW for post-production or whether it be a live sound console if you're doing a live event? How do we create those different kinds of mixes? And then and then there is perspective. Like um, uh, <clears throat> I would I would say that my natural tendency would be uh, as a as a person in a live situation, um, it's surround sound. There's sound coming from all around me. Uh, there's room sound, there's feature noises, there's different things going on. And then there's a person or people in front of me talking and, you know, in real life, that's how I would perceive it. But, um, I was at a, I was visiting with a friend of mine who is at a, uh, an Atmos post-production studio who's spoiler alert is going to be on the show in a few weeks. So we'll, we'll learn more about this. And, and they were playing me something, uh, a project that they were working on and the producer of the project, this is a musical project, wanted the surround mix done, putting the listener in the middle of the band on stage as if you were as if the listener is a musician on stage and the perspective that um i was hearing was quite strange actually to me um i was hearing the lead vocalist not coming necessarily from the front but coming from around me like 180 degrees in front of me with maybe a little bit of bias in front but the perspective was kind of weird and so you know, that's a that's a creative choice where to put the listener in the surround field. Yeah. And, and what's what's interesting about that is when you talk to most surround engineers that I've talked to, everybody starts by being really aggressive. Like, I want to put everybody all around you and everything else. And everybody always settles down to something else. <laughs> you know, like it's all, everyone has great. You talk to all of them. They're like, everybody's got great ideas at the beginning. Like, I'm going to have it swinging around and I'm going to do all these things. And then after a while, they go. And then we're going to make it something that you don't necessarily that I think almost everybody I know leans into slowly getting into. You're not going to notice it very much, but every once in a while, it, but you just feel it. You feel like you're there and we're not trying to do something that catches your eye or catches your ear um, so so much as as to just make it something that feels that, like you're immersed in it. Um, but there's also, you know, I find I have a pretty robust system at home. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a, I don't have any, uh, my speakers are placed higher. So it's kind of a weird high, you know, just, it was just because of where it needed to be, but they are, um, but it's just a seven one. And it's funny that every once in a while I'll go, Oh, they're really, they're really doing something here. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, like most of the time you just hear it and it's around you and you're just used to it being there. But every once in a while you can hear them really play, someone's playing with it. But a lot of times that happens in small bits, like just a little bit of like, we're going to do something that excites you over here or does something over here. I will say that if you have a surround system, especially with explicit speakers, uh, it, it's really fun to listen to movies where someone has taken advantage of the surround system, you know, it's the immersive uh, experience because you just hear them putting, you know, and, and a lot of times it's putting rain and putting ambient noise. A lot, a lot of this is recorded, you know, ambience is really what, what they use it for. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. 
So nitty gritty basics, we've, we've thrown out 5.1 and 5.14 and 7.1 and all that. So let's, uh, we oftentimes get up to three numbers separated by, by periods, 5.1.4. First number is horizontal channels. So those are channels and this can be delivery channels, the mix channels. This can be speaker channels, actual playback channels, but we're talking about in a 5.1. 1.4 system, there will be five speakers in the horizontal plane. The dot one is a uh, low frequency effects storage or a subwoofer speaker. Um, and it was given the dot one because it's a limited bandwidth. It's only low frequency. So the, the idea was, you know, a tenth of the data, but it's actually a whole lot less than that. And then the last number is number of height channels, ceiling channels. So if you've got a 5. It's 5.1.4, You've got, uh, and that's left, right, typically left, right, center, LFE, uh, left surround, right surround. And then if you have the, and then if you add seven, it's going to be, you're going to have two speakers in the rear. So they're not to the sides. The seven will put two speakers in the rear. And then if it's the 5.14 or 7.14, means that you've got four speakers above you. And there are, you know, very set, it's very easy for you to lay that out. We won't show the images here, but you can definitely find them quickly. Now, if you do, if do a search for 7.14 speaker configuration, you'll see those there. And um, anyway, so the, and one of the, and then 916 is another one. And I don't, my productions don't go any higher than 916 because there's 16 channels in an SDI. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's why we, we stop at 16, we stop at 916, but that you can definitely go over that. Um, you know, you can add more speakers and there are, multiple ways to do that. So one of the things that, um, that you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, as, as you start to go into the higher speaker settings. Now, the other thing to think about there is also getting out of, we think about speakers, um, but then you start moving past speakers into objects. And that's what Atmos does, which allows you to say, I'm going to define an object and I'm going to put it into 3D space. And it's going to figure out what part of that object shows up in this speaker versus that speaker. So basically it is going, you know, that if that, as that object moves around, so you have much more resolution because you're no longer trying to mix it. I'm going to mix it to this speaker and that speaker. You're just saying, I put an object here. I'm going to make this object go around and it's figuring out how much of it ends up in one speaker versus another speaker. And it's doing that calculation for you. And when it's theoretically, when it's processed and you have all those objects, what that means is that whatever resolution of the system that you have, it's going to put it in the right place. It's just going to put it in a finer, uh, at finer detail, depending on how many speakers that you actually have there. And so you have, um, you know, so that that's kind of the, the the process of how Atmos works is that you have, um, a, you know, a hundred over a hundred and I believe it's one hundred and twenty eight channels. I always forget exactly the number, but it's I think it's, and that you can mix and mix yeah. and match between bed. And, and objects. And so typically there's a handful of them that you're going to put things into the bed. So you don't put everything into objects. You're going to put things into the bed and then you're going to put, uh, then you're going to have objects that are, that are, um, that you're able to animate and move around to make that work. And so that gives you a lot more, a uh, lot more resolution to, to kind of work with and a lot more dexterity of how you have things interact with each other. Yeah. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah. Like you're saying with surround sound, you're no longer mixing to individual channels that represent speakers. You're, you're typically working oh, with in surround sound. You might be, but in Atmos, you're not. Oh, I mean, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, Atmos, you're, you're yeah. treating those. I mean, it depends on what you're in, in Atmos or other things that are doing those object based, you know, Atmos isn't the only one that does that, you know, L, um, there's other, there's other systems that do that. 
and and so you're working with a um, with a panning system that is specifically set up for that. And as you're moving your joystick around and placing an object in 3D space, like you're saying, you you not only have left and right and up and down, but you also have closer and farther. Right. 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 You can place an object closer to you or farther away from you, even in the same axis. That's kind of really interesting. And the thing that and the thing to remember as you start to you know go through this is that 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 is a very complicated calculation. It's not making it louder or softer, making it closer or further away and giving that position is taking into a into account the, you know, um, your head reference, right? So the we talked about this a little bit and Jeff talked about it a little bit um, earlier, which is the, the HRFT, um, HRT, uh, HRTF, the head referenced transfer function. And that is that that as something comes towards you, uh, your head creates, and, and Jeff is going to des- describe this in, in a previous show much more detailed than I'm going to, but your head basically creates an acoustic shadow. So it changes the the, the timber of it. So one ear, if, if the ear is going to hear it both at a different speed, so it's going to get to one ear faster than the other, but it's also going to change the tone as it gets to the other ear. And that's how we're making a decision about where it is and, and whether it's above us, to the side of us. And that, and we, and we actually, as a human being, know our own, um, you know, HRTF because you know, everybody has a different one because our heads are different. <laughs> so, but but we know where that is, and we make that make that calculation. When you're saying something has to, when you're doing something that has to get closer or further away, um, you are having to calculate all of those things to deliver. Use all of the speakers that are around you to deliver that experience back to the to the person that's listening to it. So it's not just a, I made it louder because it got close. I used to think that that's what it was, made it louder, but it's making, doing a lot of other things of, of what it's, of how it's managing that tone um, to make that work. Go ahead, Jeff. So let's take a moment and talk about center channel because uh, especially with cinema sound, things began as mono. There's a lot of drama here. Behind. Like, I will say there's a lot of drama between music mixers and and cinema mixers, uh, you know, mixing yes. engineers over the center channel. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, uh, so we started, cinema started with mono, and then when it went to multi-channel, it went to three channels behind the screen because, uh, as we talked about last week with the precedent effect, you will localize sound to where it gets to you first, the law of the first wavefront. So if you simply put a left speaker and a right speaker in a movie theater, anyone who's not sitting in the center will localize the dialogue to the speaker they're closer to. So we keep all the dialogue in the center behind the screen, and no matter where you sit, this, the talking is coming out of the talking heads on the screen. Um, in music, we primarily have mixed in stereo, and we use a phantom center to put the lead vocal appearing to come from the center. There's no way we call it phantom center because there's no speaker there, but it sounds like it's coming from the center because it's playing same amplitude and same time out of the two speakers. And yes, when music gets remixed in surround, some mixers will put the lead vocal in the center channel, some mixers will put the lead vocal in the left and the right phantom center. Some of that is because they don't trust that the consumer at home has a quality center channel speaker. They may have good left and right. It's less so now because people are buying surround sound systems or they have a sound bar. But when people went from stereo and added on and they bought sort of a surround add-on kit, they had really right. good hi-fi left-right speakers and then they added a center channel that was lesser quality. And so mixers were worried about that and didn't want their lead vocal to come out of a crappy speaker. 
And the problem you really get into, I think that the, the one that I always think about on my system at home, the one that is the example of all the things that you have to worry about is Rush, the, the, the Atmos mix of Rush's uh, Tom Sawyer is probably one, when the instrumental starts, it is one of the most impressive Atmos mixes. But as soon as Getty it's Lee starts to- It's in your to, brain. Well, but as soon as Getty Lee starts to sing, they did it in stereo and it sounds odd because of the way the way it's processed. It, it just You're just like, well, it sounds like this, it doesn't quite get to you in the right way that's there. So, and that if it if they had taken his, his vocal and put it into the center channel, it would have come out much, it would have been much more present. The, the, the song would be much better. Um, you know, in that area and to the point where I can't really listen to it in, I can't listen to it in Atmos because, because the, because the vocals are coming through the, you know, coming down those channels. Um, but the, uh, and I love that song. <laughs> anyway, so I've seen Rush a couple times live. So, um, so anyway, the, um, uh, but it's a really, when I, when Atmos, when the spatial stuff first came out on the Apple TV, I immediately sat down and just started going through song after song after song. And that was one of the most impressive ones, except for singing and almost all cinema, engineers that I talk to immediately, they don't make fun of the music engineers, but they definitely dig into the fact that they're not using the center channel, you know, like, the, you know, because all cinema engineers use the center channel all the time. I do, you know, I do stuff where we, where we actually stream live to, uh, to theaters and it's just interviews. It'll be interviews of the actors and so on and so forth that, that we, that we work with and it's streaming out to a bunch of theaters and we stream that in five, it, it, you know, we can do it in stereo, but we do it in five one. And the reason we do it in five one is because of the center channel. I want to send the, I want to send the interview, vo um, uh, folks talking to the center channel of the theater. And the only way I can get to that center channel is to use the five one system as opposed to a stereo system. And so, um, so it's, so the whole pipeline, people are always like, we have one channel. Why are we putting it? Why are we doing five one? <laughs> and, and it's because we're, um, because we're doing that. Yeah. So, and for some reason, Jason has put me in. Uh, it was very confusing, Jason. Sorry, <laughs> so don't, a don't cable hit my switcher. My <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, yeah, so so it's it's in it, it is important. The center channel is really the thing that comes up a lot. Um, and I will admit to you know a lot of times what Jeff was talking about is that if your center channel isn't really strong you have a hard time. This is why a lot of people turn, like the, there's a big, been a big thing where people are starting to mix the audio, mix folks back into the, um, the, the, the music and all the sound effects are getting louder in comparison to the, um, you know, to the, to the voice tracks. And everyone's turning, it, it's really interesting. My family, my, my daughter and my wife specifically immediately turn on captions for almost everything. Definitely Christopher Nolan films. No one watches, no one in my family watches a Christopher, Christopher Nolan film uh, without that. And they're like, well, you should just have a stronger center channel. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, like it's, it's a little bit of a mess. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Did I, did I call you already? I was just going to say that that, yeah. that Tom Sawyer mix uh, put me off of yeah. spatial music for at least a month, a yeah. solid month when I heard it. So, so you, had, you heard the same thing, right? It was like this, this weird reverberation between I, his, his voice. I, and I, like, well, I can't listen to it. It ruined, it ruined yeah. the song. Yeah. I have to go back to the stereo mix. Yeah, I do, I do too. It's, it's, and, and it can be fixed. You know, what's interesting about this is that how they're doing a lot of the spatialization is a lot. Of, if you see, there's a bunch of apps now that you can get that will separate out instruments you'll say like you can get um there's this one that i uh, that my daughter uses to practice bass where you can say i just just give me the vocal the bass the and it'll, it'll it'll just take any old song and just use ai to just rip it apart 
into multiple tracks. And I think that that's a lot of what they're doing, uh, talking to some folks. For some of the songs, they're using pretty high-end versions of this to separate those things out, to just make a little bit of separation. If they have the tracks, obviously, they just use the tracks. But for some things that have been flattened, they're using AI to spread that back out again. Um, but it's not not working all the time. Go ahead, Jason. What's, what's that app? I'll find it for you. Go ahead, Jason. You know, if I had one wish when it came to um, surround mastering and surround mixing in general, it would be use less compressor, use more EQ. Yeah. Like, just seriously. Yeah, the um, the one that, that I use uh, on my phone is called Moises, M-O-I-S-E-S. And it's not designed to do surround. It's designed to, it'll separate out, though. It'll give you the vocal track, the the guitar track, drum tracks, bass track. You know, it'll just separate those, you know, five or six different tracks out. Um, some of the DJ software now does it as well, which is really powerful. A lot of us love to try to pull elements out of a, out of a song that we could reinsert like into, you know, beat mix back into another song so that you could do a kind of a foreshadowing of this next song you're going into. And we used to use, like there was a company, not a company, a band called The Shaman that had a Progen uh, mix that would let us, it had all the tracks for all of their, for their whole song, Move Any Mountain. And you could literally just drop those in and then go into that song. But you were telling people for three for you know three songs that it was coming, um, and and so the uh, those are the kind of things that you can now do with just processing. You know, you can just process the thing in real time. Uh, it's it's kind of amazing. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I don't know so if Jason, anyone's seen. Oh, Jason. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, sorry, it's Jeff Cohen. My yeah, fault. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I don't know if anyone's seen Apple Music recently added this feature where um, kind of a karaoke style uh, for for a number of songs they can they can duck down the vocals and and give you just the music. It's funny. It's I I I, I played with it a little bit and I was like, it's a lot harder to sing with the song when you take the vocal out. <laughs> it's, it's easy. Like you feel like you're doing well and then you take the vocal Imagine out. And you're like, I don't know where to go now. Um, go ahead, Jeff. So Jason mentioned uh, compression and that kind of thing. And uh, it's very common in music mixing to have overall bus compression. And yeah. that's been easy to do in stereo. Mm -hmm. You need to have a, a surround plugin to do it in surround. The problem with Dolby Atmos is that it never actually get, gets mixed together until it's played because the objects are not mixed in mm -hmm. until it actually hits the individual person's playback system that's when the objects are mixed in so if you have you know say a guitar solo that you want to fly around as an object it will not be going through the same bus compression as the rest of your mix so right. that's something that mixers need to it's a new thing that mixers need to deal with when mixing dolby atmos is that objects do not go through any kind of bus that you can do to the beds yeah next question Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota says, what would one need to set up a surround mix for a conference room in a live situation? Uh, that would actually be pretty hard. Um, and here's why. Really hard. So venues become really difficult because, you know, how do you mix something? Generally, the surround works really, really well when you're in the center of what it's, of what it's, what it's built around. Um, as you start to move away from that center, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with uh, someone at THX and we were at a theater at the ranch and and um and the and i said so what are the best seats to sit in and they're like every seat's a good seat and i'm like okay what are the best seats to sit in <laughs> you know, like, like i get that there's and there's like 10 there's like 10 10 so there, you know, it turns out it's right in the middle for a regular theater it's right in the middle 
obviously, of it. You count the speakers. And so you go, if it's four speakers or five speakers, you just go to the between the four, the third, second and third or the, right at the middle speaker. If it's IMAX, it tends to, you want to lean back a little bit. You want to come back up up to the upper third of the, not all the way to the back, or you won't hear the surrounds. You won't hear the, the surround speakers, but you pull back about three or four rows um, from the center of the, of the, uh, of the space. And then you go, you take the middle one and you go two either way. And that's pretty, and there's two rows that are good, good in that area. And then that's pretty much it. And if you watch every theater in like San Francisco, those, if those rows will be full, no matter how empty the theater is, <laughs> like those are there because the people who know what they're doing all sit in those rows and we all consider the, it's sold out when those rows are taken. <laughs> like, like literally I, I, I often buy tickets uh, to my, the things that I go to, um, a, a solid, uh, two weeks in advance. Like I, I don't go to a movie less than two weeks in advance because I have to be able to buy the ticket so that I can sit in the seats that I want. I'm not going to pay $150, take my family to something that is uh, less than that. So, um, so the, uh, but anyway, so the, a conference room where everyone's faced a different direction and everyone's in a round, it would be almost impossible. You could do cool things with it and you could move it around, but I don't think you would get a surround experience the the only org the folks that are doing the most in live i think are um el acoustic is the is the company that thinks a lot about how do you create something that feels surround no matter where you are yeah go ahead jeff more speakers you got to distribute to more and more speakers and and then you can do more channels and now you have a, a larger system that you can send your objects to yeah it i've the, the most speakers i've seen in one theater is a hundred and a little over 180 um, speakers in a, in, in one venue and, uh, and it literally, they recreate the reverb. So it feels like you're there in a theater and then they said, but it's not really real. And they turned it off and immediately just feel like your ears got sucked out of, <laughs> out of your head because there's no, there's no reverb in the building at all. And so, uh, but you do have to, it's not just the speakers too. It's also the reverb. So it's very, it gets very complicated if this, if the, if it isn't there. And we are going to bring the folks from El Acoustic on to talk, um, in the, this year, I'm not sure exactly when we'll bring them on, but we're going to bring them on because they're the ones that probably spend the most energy thinking about how to do surround in or and and you know heavy effects. And they've got pr these processing units to manage many, many, many speakers and figure out how they're going to create that experience for people all throughout the uh, the venue. Uh, next question comes from Marty Adius in Maryland on the panel. Does a live audio mixer need to have a surround panel panner to do a surround mix? Uh, to do it well, yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. I mean, you could work around it with yeah. a standard panner and various buses for the uh, for the various pairs of channels. So your sides and your rears, you can set them up as pairs and use a standard panner, but it would be difficult. Yeah, it, it's pretty hard. <laughs> pretty hard to do it with just uh, uh, without without that there. Um, next question. Jeff Francis, Columbia, South Carolina. What's the difference between the LFE, low-frequency effects, and the subwoofer? Go ahead, Jeff. So Bill said it. LFE is a low-frequency effects. Uh, LFE is a track. It is a storage. And a subwoofer is a speaker that plays low frequencies. Uh, the LFE will get played out the subwoofer, but the subwoofer also plays low frequencies from other channels. And the, and the subwoofer, it will take, you know, if you feed it anything, right, it'll just grab onto the, it's, it's a crossover where it just says, I'm only going to play these things. Um, you know, this, this, is, is that correct, Jeff? Yeah, that we'll get into when we talk about bass management. Okay. The subwoofer can play low frequencies. Um, LFE is really 
it, it's for effects. So LFE is for explosions, cannon, Godzilla, uh, dinosaur footsteps, those kind of things. So the LFE actually has 10 dB more headroom than the other channels in a cinema. So uh, if, if a cinema maxes out at an acoustic playback of 115 dBSPL, the LFE will play at 125 dBSPL. So it's when, when you've, every other channel goes all the way down to 20 hertz and below. So all of the storage channels can support low frequencies. But if you've run out of headroom and you want that explosion to be even more powerful, there's your LFE. And you can do a lot in the LFE. The, there's a couple of movies. That, there's this thing that, that's on our, on our wall in my, in my, uh, where, I, where we watch TV in the TV room. And, and it will vibrate when the LFE goes to a certain level. I know, I, it's, there's a discussion about why it should be there. But anyway, but that's not, <laughs> I don't control what, what's on that wall. So anyway, so it vibrates a little bit. And what's funny is, is when something big is going to happen and someone's trying to um, tell you that something bad's going to happen, you'll hear something and it, it, you will almost not hear it. But that thing starts to vibrate. <laughs> it starts to vibrate. So, so then that's when someone's taking advantage of that LFE and they're just driving stuff into it. And there's been some experiments of giving, I think there's a movie that does, for the first half of the movie, it runs at something like um, 30, you know, hertz or something like that at a, in the, you know, and, and, and it just creates this uneasiness. And then they take it away and you suddenly feel a lot better. <laughs> but they, they kind of build it up. So there's a lot you can do in that area. Uh, next question. Jeff Francis again, Columbia, uh, South Carolina. What is base management and why do I need it? Go ahead, Jeff. So if your speakers are not full range and can't go all the way down to 20 hertz, so we're talking about smaller home theater systems, we're talking about smaller studios, then we're going to use the subwoofer that can do low frequencies to supplement the base of other channels. Um, and so... This is something that happens that there is a routing, uh, that's the wrong button. Um, so the, this is showing a 5.1. So there's five full range channels and an LFE track in the storage. And those go in the regular five channels get high pass filtered and those frequencies go to the smaller speakers. So they'll play things in this case, it's showing 60 Hertz and up, but it might be a hundred Hertz. And then all of those low frequencies get combined together from those five full range channels and they get added to the LFE track and they play out the subwoofer track. So that is base management, which is taking your base, your low frequencies from all the channels and sending them to the speakers that use them. Uh, theatrical systems shouldn't need base management because they should have full range and often are required if they want certification. Next question. Tommy Schantz, St. Paul, Minnesota. Having powered speakers, getting a dedicated AV receiver doesn't make much sense. What would be a good USB interface to get the signals? Is there a better solution? Uh, yeah, an AV system that has uh, XLR outs, <laughs> which exists. It exists. And so uh, Monoprice makes one. Um, I think that there's a couple other companies that I don't know if Monoprice is still selling the one that they have. They are expensive. So the AVRs, are not inexpensive, but there are AVRs with balanced outs. And you can get, the most I've seen are 16 outs of one AVR, um, but some of them are, are less. They're, they're seven channels or, or nine channels. Um, so there's, they're kind of de dependent on, uh, or eight channels. There's a lot of different ones there, but they do start at about $2,000 and go up to about five or $6,000. And they, they um, and we've used them in the past. What's, what's interesting is if you're trying to uh, 
not that I would ever need to do this, but if you're trying to record uh, something and you, you don't need all the objects, but you do need the surround, you need to record all the channels out of something that's coming in, let's say over your Apple TV. And you, you run it into one of, these XL, one of these AVRs and you can run XLR out of them and record the channels so that it's not as good because it's not gonna be, uh, you know, the problem with that is that of course that AVR is is balanced for the room that it's in. So what happens with an AVR, for those of you who haven't, use these is you have a little microphone that usually comes with it and you plug it in and you set it where you're going to sit and then it figures out what the what it does is it puts out a bunch of signals and figures out what the speakers have to do to have the proper volume to where you are going to be at reference and then when you take that that mic out that's how that that's what's coming out of all those individual channels um so but there are a handful of of avrs that will that will do that effectively um i don't know of any other better way to do that as far as getting those out to powered speakers. Um, there's uh, the, the problem you get into is a lot of the protection that's related to that. So the AVR, you know, when it comes in, you can do it with raw stuff if you're developing something, but when you're watching something um, that that grabs onto that, I am not certain uh, because something has to handshake, just a handshake that we might get something in the, in the chat with that, but I haven't seen I uh, haven't seen anything that, that does that very well other than other than using the AVR to extract it from a commercial broadcast. There's lots of things that you can do with without that. No, next question. Next question comes to us from Hasbun Kajar in Cape Town, South Africa. And he says, in the context of Apple Music, there is spatial audio and Dolby Atmos. Is this interchangeable naming or are, do they mean two different audio experiences? Go ahead, Jeff. Like everything Apple, they do their own thing. So spatial audio is kind of Apple's implementation of Atmos and surround. So you're not guaranteed if some track says it's spatial audio, uh, how many particular bed channels it has or whether it has objects at all. Um, and then when that goes, I listened primarily on to spatial on AirPod Pros and uh, it actually the signal that gets sent to the AirPod Pros, I believe is a 5.1.2. And then the AirPod Pros make a binaural listening experience and basically place each of those eight uh, speaker channels around my head. Yeah, and, and it, it, you will see the things that Apple will say Atmos or Spatial, and it doesn't, they're not always interchangeable. Um, generally, an Atmos mix is an Atmos mix and a spatial mix is something that Apple's processed to spatial. It's not truly an Apple, I mean, try not truly an Atmos mix. It's, it's, it's something that they're processing to make it feel like it's more, uh, more, has more dimensionality. And that gets into what we were talking about before. I don't have any proof of that Apple's doing this, but uh, a lot of people theorize that Apple is um, using machine learning to basically tear this, tear the songs apart put them into, you know, open them up in space and then and then deliver them to you. Um, next question. A next question is mine, actually, from San Diego. Regarding soundstage positioning, where does changing the sound perspective to match a listener's head-facing position come in relative to feeding them the same perspective as recorded? Uh, how does this fit into the sound, the surround discussion? Go, Jeff. So I guess, Bill, you're talking about head tracking. Which is yeah, kind of you know at a symphony, even though there are multiple in you know you're in a position in the audience. So no, when you turn your head, the sound is going to change, hitting your ears. If you're wearing headphones or anything else that's supposed to be surround, 
I guess it would be up to the mixer to determine whether or not it's tracking your head positioning and changing that perspective. Or like wearing headphones, no matter which way you point your head, you hear the exact same stereo mix. So the Apple uh, AirPod Pros will do this when watching uh, certain media, because if you're watching on your phone, it uh, knows where your phone is positioned. So if you're watching media and you're hearing dialogue, it's right in front of you. But if you turn your head, it still sounds like the dialogue is coming from your phone that is sitting there. So if you have, and that's a, a setting in the, the headphones that you can turn on or off. Yeah, like they, you can turn off spatial. Which I turn off pretty quickly. You know, I, 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 it drives me absolutely crazy. Like it, it, what happens is a lot of times I'll be watching and I'll stand up and I'll walk, I'll walk away. <laughs> Suddenly it's behind me, you know, and, 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 and it's, and it's not something that I, it's not something that I appreciate. I, I love hearing the stuff around me. I do not like the head tracking part of the the calculation that Apple adds to their Apple stuff. I to the to the their headsets. Um, I just prefer it to. I want to hear it all around me. But I walk a lot when I'm listening to stuff. So sitting somewhere, um, I don't I don't usually appreciate that the same way. I wonder now if that the, comes from our conditioning of wearing headphones for so long, where that yeah. stereo perspective, no matter where you go with it, it yeah. always stays fixed. Yeah, and I just want it to stay fixed. So I, maybe I'm too old. I, I don't like the moving around, move my head moving in. I, when I'm testing stuff for streams, when I've done surround, uh, a lot of times I think something's broken because I'm like, well, something's broken. I'm like, oh, it's just my head. You know, like it's just like my head's in the wrong place. I, that's fine. And you'll see me also to test something that's, is it calculated and spatially? I'll turn my head back and forth to see if it's doing that. Um, but the, uh, anyway, yeah. So the, the other thing to remember though, is that as you record it, you have to think about those things as well. So we were doing a 360, this is probably six or seven years ago. We were doing a 360 stream. These are the, with the Nokia, uh, Ozos. And we had a four camera Nokia shoot and we were, this is at NAB and we were streaming it back. And so, and we realized as we were setting up, yeah, every time we change cameras, you're in a different perspective. If you're watching a live show, those players are now in a different place in relationship to you. So we have to change the mix every time we cut the camera. And so what we did is we um, tied, we took a GPIO out of the, out of our ATEM and we put it into the uh, QL5, I think. And, um, and so basically we set up scenes so that when we cut from camera to camera, it would change that scene. And it turned out if you changed a little too fast, it was too abrupt. And if you changed too slow, you got this weird mix <laughs> between the two and it, it was disrupting. So we had to find just the right speed at which we would go. But basically we would activate that change to a scene based on what camera it was. So we had to automate that. Otherwise it was impossible to try to make it work. And that worked pretty well, you know, and, um, but we had to really know where those cameras, you know, where the cameras were going to be and moving the cameras meant we had to reset all of those positions. So we were, we were pretty careful about that. Uh, next question. Hasma Gajar, Cape Town, South Africa. I have a 724 surround sound and mostly listen to Dolby Atmos music. Also Dolby Atmos content from an ATV plus. I failed to discern audio from the four ceiling speakers. Am I missing something in my configuration? Go, Jeff. Well, you could, uh, as a test, you could unplug the other speakers and determine if there's any sound coming out of there or not. Um, the track I'd point you to would be Elton John's Rocket Man in uh, the spatial audio version. Uh, the little guitar riff uh, before the chorus uh flies over your head. So it's a pretty discernible uh, ceiling move. Um, something that you'll also find when you start to, uh, if you get them working and you unplug the other channels, you'll begin to discover as you're listening to 
this music how very compressed the audio is in the ceiling channels. Remember that though we're, we're dealing with many, many, many more channels, we're not dealing with that much more data that we're allowed in these files. They're bigger, but they're not, you know, eight times bigger. So the data well, compression the- is quite severe, um, especially in the ceiling channels. If you listen to the ceiling channels by themselves in most music, they sound absolutely horrible. And, and data it, compressed. Yeah, it depends on what you're, yeah, you know, a lot of times we can make them sound as good. It's just that most people don't add the, that, that much data into the channel. So you can, you can get them to where they're a solid, you know, I mean, 64 per channel is, is usually pretty good, actually, will sound, um, you know, is, is, but it's, but yeah, it's, you, and they're not perfect that way, but, but you can make them a lot better if you, if you want to push the envelope there. The, uh, the other thing you'll notice is there's a lot of air up there, you know, that it creates. So typically you don't hear things explicitly through the top speakers. You hear reverb through the top speakers. You hear, you know, the how the effect on the atmosphere. So they don't usually put a lot, you don't hear a lot of things over your head, or at least I don't. Um, usually what happens is, is that I hear the effects of things that are going to the sides around me happening over top of it. And if you turn it off, you'll hear it, but you have to kind of be able to turn them on and off. To, to, and you'll hear this kind of more, spaciousness, you know, is, is really what, what I usually, what we usually see thrown into those top speakers. And some people will put things up there, but, um, but it's usually for effect. Uh, you know, if they put them up there, um, they don't usually put them up there regularly or like, at least again, I don't hear them put them up there regularly. Uh, next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri. For setting up a surround sound system, how important is having all the speakers at the same height in the room? Go ahead, Jeff. Well, we talked about last week that uh, we hear using uh, time for arrival of our and head shadowing, and that gives us really good acuity in the horizontal plane, but we have less acuity in the vertical plane. So you can actually have your surround speakers slightly different angles. Generally, uh, they're preferred to be uh, at uh, listener height or higher. And I think uh, 15 degrees is the spec, but I can't recall if that's exactly right. Um, Height often is your advantage in those because if there's more than one person in the room, that will get the sound to both of you because you get over someone's head. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, Florida. Thoughts on the way that Clubhouse implemented spatial audio to make it sound like participants are in different positions around you? We're playing with that as well. I don't know how well it'll work. Uh, Blue Jeans has been doing it for a while with in partnership with Dolby where people are in different places based on it. it. Unfortunately, with Blue Jeans, it doesn't really calculate where they are on your screen. They just kind of make up something they put people in. So sometimes you have one person on one side of the screen and another person on another, and the audio's not lining up with that. So we're working on how do we make that actually work. I, uh, I actually like it. You know, so I like having it spread out, not a lot, not like all around me, but I like it spread out a little bit across that because it does make me feel a little bit more, um, uh, it makes me feel like a, you know, like a, it, it puts a position for me in it. Um, if it's done too much, it seems it's disorienting. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, and that's a good point with with trying to align it with video. Um, with Clubhouse, of course, it, it's just audio, and so yeah, I like it too. It 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 puts a little bit of uh, just makes you aware there's a different person speaking, and then of course you could just see the little um, uh, icon or thumbnail for that person blinking, so you know who's speaking. But it but it's an interesting effect that you hear people in in different spaces. Uh, interesting, tough problem to to align it with video positioning on a screen. 
Next question. Douglas Carmichael, would Logic be a solid entry-level platform to learn for learning to mix surround and or Atmos content on a Mac OS without a surround monitoring system? Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, yeah, if you've already got a Mac, uh, Logic is a great option because it includes Apple's implementation of the renderer, the Dolby renderer, and it will actually render those multiple channels and objects into a binaural feed that can go right into your headphones. And so you can monitor this and mix right in Logic. The one, one thing to remember is that you can mix for what you're listening to. So the the physics of everything, you can try to simulate some of those things that are there. But if you mix the headphones, you're going to mix a surround sound for headphones. If you mix it into a room, you're going to mix it into a room. And if you mix it into a theater, you're going to mix it into a theater. And the physics are very different between the three. And so uh, if you don't, so what we have is, you know, there's headphones, there's there's near field, which is near field is generally a mixing room. So if the room is, let's say 20 by 20 or, or something like that, that's a near field mix. And, and then you have a theater mix. So when folks mix in a theater, they actually are sitting in a, a volume the size of a theater. So it's literally that, that, that build. Um, and it's 55 feet long. It's 30, 30 feet, 30, 35 feet wide. It's got all the speakers where they need to be. And, uh, and we're going to bring somebody on to talk about that in the future. But but the but that allows them to hear how that is going to sound. Things that sound very full in a near field mix will feel very stark in a theater mix because the, it's not just that the speakers are further away. There's a bunch of soft things that are sucking up all that sound, and so it just doesn't get to you. <laughs> so so um, and so it's just a very and it took me a little while. I was like, oh, I don't understand. I can I can mix this in a in a room and it'll sound fine in a theater. And we have a theater in our building as well as the room that we had with uh, the 514. And walking between the two, it was like night and day. Like it just, I suddenly realized you can't, you can't really mix a, um, you know, a theater mix without the theater itself, the volume. Um, next question. Uh, next question is another one of mine. And this was uh, interesting for me as a video editor. I've been shocked at how much what I see impacts what I hear. Basically, uh, cutting to the shot of a keyboard player kind of lets me hear the piano clearer. Is that typical? Can you discuss it, Jeff? Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, totally. That that your eyes definitely play into that. Um, I've been doing uh, our opera at the university has performed in, in several of the same venues every year. And it's an interesting difference between operas in a foreign language and operas in English. Um, because in a foreign language, you have uh, supertitles, subtitles hung above the stage. And uh, the level of the uh, singing in relation to the live orchestra can be much less because you get the context of things from the written supertitles. Whereas if they're singing in English, the actual singing needs to be louder so you can understand what's going on. So that, that idea of like getting your information from some other cue, whether it be written or a visual cue, um, allows you to hear things differently. Absolutely. Go ahead, Jeff. It's such a weird thing uh, when I'm editing uh, even my own voice for recording voiceover. It's amazing sometimes if I, you know, want to really kind of critically listen. Did it, was there a click just there for whatever reason? You know, I, I hit play, close my eyes, and, and then I can really focus on it. And I don't know if it's just because I'm not distracted by, by looking at what's happening on screen, but uh, I do that all the time. 
Yeah, I, if I really like a, an audio mixer, I think, oh, someone did something really good. A lot of times I'll sit there on a Saturday afternoon and I will literally just close my eyes and listen to a movie, a whole movie. Like I just lay, lay back and I just listen to it and I listen to what they're doing and I listen. And it's very hard, as Jeff said, for me to watch the movie and listen to it. It's very hard, but I can listen to the whole movie and just hear it. And sometimes I'll be walking around doing yard work and I'll just, I just put the movie on and I just listen to it on my phone and I'm just listening to it while I'm working and thinking about, oh, I see what they did there. And that's really cool. And, and I can get it at a whole different level than I can if I'm, if I'm trying to watch it. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I do a similar sort of thing when I'm editing, audio editing with a client. Uh, when we go to listen back to an edit, I set every computer I use, the bottom left-hand corner, if you roll the mouse into it, it turns on the screensaver. So when I go hit play and I just roll the mouse down there and the screensaver activates so you're not looking at waveforms going by. Yeah. And it allows you to actually listen rather than listen with your eye. Yeah, especially if I do any kind of edit, like a edit to a vocal or something like that, the first thing I do is hit play and I close my eyes to make sure I, that I don't notice that it went from one thing to the next or I don't hear the, you know, it's too hard to do it without it. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, Waves has a dedicated compression plug-in called Spherix, which is designed for 7.1.4 or 7.1.2 mixing. Not having surround mixing experience, would it be advantageous? And he's got a link there to the Waves plug-in. It could be. I mean, you know, as we start to move forward with a lot of this, we'll start to experiment with a lot more of these plugins and so on and so forth. So we'll, uh, we'll have to take a look at it. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, Florida. How does listening with headphones affect our perception of surround sound? Given in the real world, both ears hear all sound just with the difference in timing. But with headphones, the channels are isolated to each ear depending on the mix. Go ahead, Jeff. And I think I want to give credit. I think Jeff Francis actually just kind of mentioned this uh, in his talk the other week. Um, and it, I mean, it sounds so simple and obvious, but it really made me think about that because it's, it's true. It's a distinct difference. And like Alex was just talking about, you know, and that's really my question. I mean, you, you, are you mixing with any of those scenarios in mind that someone's going to be in a theater versus how they might perceive it in headphones? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. So if there is a thing that can happen with surround uh, mixes that they can be rendered into binaural. And so basically what, what happens is the, each speaker signal is given that head-related transfer function. So a right side speaker would ar arrive with its signal playing out of my right headphone sooner than my left headphone. And it would have head shadowing, and pin accues and all of that applied to it. And that's part of the binaural render. Yeah, it, what's interesting is it can be binaural or it can just be straight on stereo. And what happens is that whole surround mix gets folded down into the into a stereo mix. And a lot of times from Atmos, it'll get folded down into that. Now, we've interviewed a lot of mi uh, mixing and there's a little bit of controversy as to whether you should do a separate mix, a surround mix. What Dolby pushes and and a fair number of mixers agree with is that if you just build the whole thing in Atmos, the fold down to stereo will actually be superior than if you actually try to mix it on your own for stereo and mix it for, you know, they, they're mostly saying start at Atmos and then go down to stereo. There's a lot of different opinions in that area as to which one is better. Um, I personally, I've heard a lot of Atmos fold downs that have sounded Great. Um, but I also, um, but I think that they both sound really good. If you have someone, it, it's mostly like how talented is your 
audio engineer and hopefully they're very talented because then they will a, a talented audio engineer will privy, you generally build a better stereo mix in my opinion but an average audio engineer will not be able to do better than atmos <laughs> so uh, next question Jeff Francis back again from Columbia. What are the panel's thoughts on dedicated surround microphones? Good, Jeff. I'm just kind of curious. There's a whole bunch of these things. There's, uh, you know, these kind of, uh, so the, that's the, that's yeah, the, the, and the, go ahead. The holophone and the DPA, uh, are the, the DPA is the one at the bottom that looks like, they call it the bicycle seat mm-hmm. microphone, and these have uh, five omni-transducers mounted on the outside of a, of a body, and then that's the new Audio-Technica, which has eight, uh, I believe, cardioid capsules pointing in all kinds of wacky directions. Um, and then there's uh, things like the Ambio, Mike, I think I have a picture of that. I have the... I have the MBO, and we're going to be testing that over the... I'm actually testing it this weekend. I thought it was going to be last weekend, but I'm going to try to do it there. And then Zoom has one as well. And um, so we're, we're going to start testing some of, yeah. some of those um, as, we, as we move forward. Uh, again, this is something that we're going to talk about. I, I, a lot of times we're using mics that aren't surround, that are just giving us the stuff we want to put in the surround speakers. So that might be audience. It might be something else that we're trying to do that or, or reverb, and we're not capturing it as a capsule. One of the complaints about the capsule is, is that it doesn't separate very much, you know, so that they're not the, the, the um, HRTF isn't there. The, you know, there are actually mics that you can get. Sennheiser actually makes amb- ambient ambio mics that you can put in as headphones, and they re- they're microphones. They record using your head actually as the you know, as the blocker, you know, for them. So there's a lot of different ways of, of looking at this. Um, you know, again, as we do more and more in five one on the show, uh, you'll see us experimenting with a lot of these mics. Go ahead, Marty. When you take uh, individual microphones and put them together in arrays, um, is, there's a lot of physics that go into that because uh, as, as sound arrives, <clears throat> To these microphones, they will record at different times and at different intensities, depending on whether it's a cardioid microphone, an omnidirectional microphone, and the relationship. And so, you know, dating back to the early days of just recording stereo, you know, there are different ways that you can put different microphones together in different arrays, meaning how far apart they are, what angle they are in relation to each other. And so these combination microphones, these one-piece microphones, try and make it very simple to do that because all of that physics is already done for you. Yeah. Uh, Next question. Next question comes up from John Preto in Las Vegas. How does Dolby Atmos ensure that audio objects are accurately positioned in a three-dimensional space within the listening environment? Go ahead, John. I just wanted to wish Chad LFG happy birthday. That's all. (laughs) Good, Jeff. They do the best they can. So they use the speaker or speakers that is closest to the position that the object, its three-dimensional position of the object, and it determines, your playback system determines this is the closest speaker or the closest pair of speakers, and we'll do a phantom image between those closest pair of speakers the more speakers you have the more accurate it is there we go i think that was a good i think that was a good introduction like just just a just a casual conversation about this we're going to have this hopefully gets people thinking about it and interested in it. that's all the design was for today was just to talk through that um we are going to do more a lot more around this um i do want us to kind of become a think tank for doing immersive audio 
you know, like that we, you know, that we, and so the goal is, is to bring more people in as often as once a month um, to talk about uh, immersive audio and, and really have us by the end of the year really get it and really understand it. And we're going to work on how do we get you some example files and how do we do labs in, you know, in, in Atmos and how do we do, you know, bits and pieces of how to make this all work so that we have a large number of people. Because what happens, and it's why we have like a graphics day, we're trying to kind of build that up in our, in our group, is that as more and more of us understand it, even the basic understanding, it accelerates all of our learning because more and more of us are starting to think about it as a group. Um, I know that sounds like a crazy way to do this, but we're not trying to have one person figure this out and tell us. It's, we're trying to have, you know, 50 or 100 of us thinking about it and researching on our own. And every time we have these conversations, those the the conversation will get deeper and more pointed um, every single time. And that's our that's our goal. So our recommendation, my recommendation is to keep on studying this, take the things that we've talked about here, you know, go out and study those things. We're going to have some pretty deep thinkers when it comes to this coming you know, to on the show. And uh, you want to, you know, learn as much as you can to get the most out of their their joining us. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. So I just want to, I found this picture. It wasn't the one I was looking for. Uh, this, this is a research facility in China, and uh, there's 200 Genelec speakers in a sphere. I, I need that. And then just put a screen in there and I can just watch Wow. Movies. That'll be, that's, what you're seeing there is a picture of my future um, movie movie space. You know, that like, that's that's where I want to watch, when I watch my films. When Alex has a billion dollars, <laughs> exactly. that'll be it. Maybe even just a hundred thousand, and then I won't have any more money. So anyway, I'll just have that probably not even a couple hundred thousand dollars, and I won't have any more money. But I'll have a great theater experience. All right, uh, thanks so much to the uh, the producers. Great questions uh, to keep everything going. Uh, it's good good conversation, and that's uh, thanks to the producers for keeping that going. Um, thanks to the panelists, of course. We can't do this without you. Um, really great conversation. Um, this is exactly what we wanted to do on this first one. So um, so great work there. And, uh, and of course, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that allows us to have this happen. <laughs> like this, this show doesn't happen without a small village that gets up every day and meets between all, all of these, meets over the week, figures out how to make things better, how to make things more stable. There's just an enormous, we had a meeting, a dev, we have a dev team meeting on Tuesdays and I'm always struck by just the enormous amount of work people are putting into making this a great show. So I just, we just really appreciate uh, all the work that everybody does um, to to have this actually happen. So thanks for your contribution. Um, and I, we have traveled 103,000 miles. So we made it to 1K, uh, 165,000 kilometers. That's 933 million bananas for scale. Or and, half, um, a half, half a Tlaloc. Half a Tlaloc. What's a Tlaloc? I'd say a quarter million miles. Yeah. Quarter million miles. Almost half a Tlaloc. Okay. So a, a quarter million miles is a, is a Tlaloc. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, now we have a new, a new point of reference. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. There'll be somewhere in the future where we, when we whisper, it'll be all around you. Like you'll hear, you'll hear Jeff going, like coming in from the surround speaker and then you'll hear somebody else. Going. Terrifying. It'll just be like this. In fact, it'll probably be all just regular stereo for most of the show. And then suddenly you'll just hear this like. Earn your way to the overhead channels. <laughs> Rise up. Someone Rise up. Big man. We'll just campus. increase the bass real slow. Oh, he's in the upper left channel. I see. Oh, I no, see. I'm in the subwoofer again. <laughs> Halloween target Halloween you'll be you'll, if you don't shape up I'm putting you in the subwoofer you'll spend the whole show I think Nigel Nigel will come from the subwoofer oh 
time out in the subwoofer. Oh. Uh, they're meaning to the back of the bus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach me to interrupt 